I want you to remain standing and turn and grab your Bible. We're going to move on into our scripture reading. And we are going to continue with our sermon series in Philippians. So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 27 and 28. Philippians chapter 1, verses, starting in verse 27. Follow along as I read. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Let's pray. Father, we, we are grateful. We are just so thankful that we have a God that reigns, that we know is in charge. And in a time when life is chaotic and the culture is scary at times, it can be frightening, God, we just fall back on, a, on knowing that we rely on a God that is in charge, that you reign. And we thank you for that. We bow before your reigning in submission, and we just pray that we would hear your word preached today, that we would hear it with our heart, we would respond, we would be changed, and we would obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to that point in the series in Philippians where Paul is making a shift He is pivoting, if you will, from really talking about himself and really giving us an inside look at his own heart, his own testimony. Up until now, that is what he has been sharing with us. But now he pivots and he begins to focus on the Philippians themselves and by application to us here as Christ followers today. And as he does this, as he pivots, as he shifts to an applicational focus for us... He's really seeking to answer this question. What really matters in life? What really matters in life? In light of his pending trial before Caesar, Paul has already declared that whether he lives or dies, Christ is his all. In fact, he emphatically states that in verse 21, if you remember, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he's ready for either life or death. Either way, his, his one supreme ambition in life is to simply magnify Jesus Christ, to, to honor Christ, to, to exalt Christ, whether it's by life or by death. And although Paul longs to be with Christ in heaven, he's willing to live for Christ here on earth. In fact, he even hopes to see these Philippian believers once again. But even if Paul doesn't get to see the Philippians again, doesn't really matter. What really matters for them and for us is what he says here in verse 27. Look at it again. 
He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so it's almost as if Paul raises his finger in the air and he says, now listen to me and listen well, listen carefully, because whether I live, whether I die makes no difference. Only one thing matters. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Although Paul deeply cares for these Philippian believers, Listen, he is much more concerned about the gospel in Philippi just as he's concerned about the gospel going forth here in Kansas City and across the world. As one commentator writes, Paul's ultimate concern for them is directly related to his concern for the gospel in Philippi. And so Paul says, there's just one thing and I want you to focus on it. Live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kind of reminds me of that scene in that Phenomenal movie, City Slickers. How many are old enough to remember that great movie? Some of you are. In 1991, it's about a group of friends who live in the big city life but decide to go on a cattle drive in the West. And they are led by a wise old cowboy named Curly who's played by Jack Palance. The main character is named Mitch, played by Billy Crystal. And during one point in the movie, Curly asks, pointing his index finger in the air, do you know what the secret of life is? And Mitch says with a puzzled look on his face, your finger? And Curly responds, one thing, just one thing. You stick to that. And Mitch quickly asks, but what is that one thing? And Curly smiles and points his finger at Mitch and says, that's what you have to find out. Well, fortunately for us, Paul tells us exactly what the one thing is. And by the way, it is the main thing. Notice this in your notes. As citizens of heaven, the one thing, the main thing is this, to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ and reflects that Jesus Christ is your king. As believers, we are making a statement about the gospel, not only with our lips, but also with our lives. And so Paul says, in fact, this is the first place where he actually commands us to do something. It's the first command in the whole book of Philippians. And it doesn't happen until verse 27. But here he is now commanding us, he's exhorting us, live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and reflects that Jesus is your king. Now, at this point, we probably ought to stop and be careful here. Because part of the gospel message is that we are not worthy. We don't earn We don't deserve God's favor in our lives. Why? Because we have all sinned against God and we are all deserving of God's condemnation. And yet, the glorious news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins in our place to what? To reconcile us to a holy God. And so the gospel is all about the grace of God. And grace has nothing to do with being worthy. It's just the opposite. We are not worthy to receive God's salvation. But what does God do? He gives us salvation as a free gift through our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
And so when we talk here about living worthy of the gospel, we're not talking about living in such a way as to earn the benefits of the gospel. Rather, we are talking about living in such a way that reflects the reality that you have already received the benefits of the gospel. And this gospel reality changes everything. Hopefully, it changes everything about your life. In the way that you live. And so let your manner of life, Paul is saying, be shaped by the fact that you believe the gospel and that Jesus Christ is your king. Paul would say to us today something like this. The gospel is not something that you just simply add to your already nice existence here on earth. The gospel is something that changes everything about your existence here on earth. See, many people are trying to just use Jesus as kind of like a a vitamin or a protein shake to enhance the quality of their present lives. But this is foolishness when you really think about it. Because this present world is like a ship sinking into the sea. And Jesus did not come to make your sinking experience as pleasant as possible. He came to get you off of that ship. To change your reality. And that's exactly what the gospel does. It sets you on a different ship as a saint in Jesus Christ, headed toward a different destination in heaven, serving a different king in Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, this phrase that Paul uses here, manner of life, it literally means to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. It's a phrase that is built upon the Greek word for city, polis. And immediately you probably hear that in some of the names of our cities here in the United States, such as Minneapolis or Indianapolis. And this word has overtones of even citizenship responsibilities. And yet Paul is not thinking about their citizenship in Rome, rather Paul has in mind their ultimate citizenship in heaven. In fact, later on, he'll re- he refers to this in Philippians 3.20 where he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Philippians, their culture in that city, they prided themselves on the fact that their city was a Roman colony with Roman citizenship. And so what Paul is doing here is something very intentional. He's playing off of their pride of Roman citizenship, and now he's redirecting it toward the kingdom of God. One commentator says it this way. Here, Paul challenges his beloved Philippians with a counter-citizenship whose capital and seat of power are not earthly but heavenly, whose guarantor is not Nero but Christ. Another commentator writes, the town of Philippi was enjoying the personal patronage and benefactions of Lord Caesar, but the Philippians were subjects of the one who alone is Lord, and to whom every knee, including Nero, will bow. So Paul is saying, listen, live in your city as a worthy citizen of God's kingdom and reflects that Jesus is your king. Now, understand as well, 
there has never been a friendly environment in Philippi in which to actually live worthy of the gospel. This Roman city, Philippi, actually declared war on Paul and his converts from day one. When the Roman officials beat him in Silas, you can read about it in Acts 16. And so when Paul and these Philippian believers talk about the good news of the gospel, they are swimming against the stream of the Roman Empire. When they talk about Jesus as Lord, they are not just declaring that Jesus is king, but that Caesar is not. And that was viewed as treason. And if you don't believe me, just listen to what they said about Paul and Silas later on in the next chapter of Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. It says this, and when they could not find them, Silas and Paul, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And so now Paul is telling them, telling the Philippian church, there's just one thing that matters, even where you live in Philippi, as a Roman colony. He is saying to them, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and reflects that Jesus, Jesus alone is your king. So before you're a citizen of Philippi, you're a citizen of heaven. Live in a way that now reflects your gospel citizenship. Today, if Paul was standing here, he would say to us something like this. Your passport may say that you're a citizen of the USA, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he is your highest allegiance. Sure, you have dual citizenship, but your citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, and that trumps everything else about you. So live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and reflects that Jesus truly is you're king of kings and lord of lords. Now, the obvious question is, how do you do this, right? <laughs> Easier said than done. What does this even look like to live worthy of the gospel as Paul now is commanding us to do? Well, Paul doesn't leave us guessing. He actually tells us. He says, I want to hear that you are doing two things that are essential to living worthy of the gospel. And the first of which is this. Stand together against attacks on the gospel of Christ. The first thing Paul wants to hear about these Philippian believers, and even hear about us, is that we are standing together against the attacks on the gospel of Christ. Look what Paul says again in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Hear what? That you are standing firm in one spirit. This metaphor, stand firm, it's a military term. It refers to holding one's ground, regardless of danger, regardless of opposition. In fact, the word was used of a soldier who defended his position at all costs, even to the point of sacrificing his own life. Figuratively, stand firm then means to hold fast to something. 
In this case, we are holding fast to a belief, a conviction, a principle without compromise, regardless of personal cost. And in context, specifically, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the essence of what it means now to stand together. Look at it. Like soldiers, we must stand firm together in order to hold fast to an unwavering commitment to the gospel while under attack. You see, the Philippians were attacked and were under attack for believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for proclaiming that Jesus Christ is king and serving Christ as king. Consequently, Paul now urges them to remember that they are like soldiers who are engaged in a war. They must not compromise their loyalty to Jesus, but instead faithfully stand firm in the face of attacks. Now, this is a phrase that Paul absolutely loves to use. Stand firm. And he uses it quite often throughout his letters, such as when he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Paul uses this phrase again, even here in Philippians in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so it's a call to hold fast to the gospel. How? By standing firm in the face of attacks. And we do this by standing firm in one spirit. Most Bible versions interpret in one spirit along with one mind. They interpret those as synonymous expressions calling us to stand in unity or to stand without division. And while that is certainly true. There are actually sound reasons to capitalize the word spirit as in reference to God's spirit, which means that our ability to stand firm is through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who gives us new life in Christ and indwells us at the moment of our salvation and actually fortifies us to stand firm in the gospel. I think you would agree with me that holding fast to the gospel is critical now more than ever in our culture. If you don't stand firm when the storms of life are raging and when tragedy strikes, you will find yourself being pulled away from the grace, mercy, and love of God in the gospel, and it's going to pull you into the abyss of self-destruction. What Paul wants more than anything for these Philippian believers and for us here this morning is for true believers to stand firm in one spirit and to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And please know that when we hold fast to the gospel, we are standing firmly planted in the grace of God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so it's true that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, then you are not working for the acceptance of God. You are living from the acceptance of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf. So let your citizenship in heaven be shaped first and foremost by your standing in the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul continues even in Romans 5 where he says in verses 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Abraham Lincoln once said, Be sure to put your feet in the right place and then stand firm. Well, the right place is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem is, a lot of times we have our feet in the wrong place. As Christians, we often have our feet planted in, I've got to try harder. I've got to do more to somehow earn God's acceptance. Listen, folks, that's religion. You're a citizen of religion, not a citizen of the good news and the gospel. And so Paul, get this, he grounds his exhortation here to stand firm in what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we find our power to stand firm in our warrior king, Jesus Christ. Listen, we are saints in Christ, in that warrior king. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who has purchased us. He has sent his spirit to empower us. And so now Paul tells us, listen, stand firm. Hold fast to his glorious gospel. That's the first distinctive of living worthy of the gospel. Stand together against the attacks on the gospel of Christ. The second distinctive, the second way we live worthy of the gospel is to now strive together for the advance of the gospel of Christ. Paul continues in verse 27. Look at it again with me. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, here's what I want to hear. I may hear of you that you are now, what? With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What Paul does here with this phrase, he now shifts from a battlefield to an athletic field when he says, with one mind, striving side by side. This phrase, striving side by side, is the vocabulary of athletes working together as a team. In fact, we actually get our English word, Athlete or athletics from this Greek word translated as striving. It means to contend together, to compete together. And so again, here's the essence of what Paul is saying. Notice in your notes, like athletes this time, we must strive together as a team to advance the gospel. Think of a football team. In fact, think of our beloved Chiefs, right? You have various members on the team and they have to not only compete to the best of their ability, but they also have to 
work together as a team with each one fulfilling their role in doing their job so that together they can move the ball down the field and score a touchdown. And the offensive linemen, what what are they doing? Well, they're blocking side by side to protect Patrick Mahomes so that he can throw the ball downfield to Tyreek or to Travis Kelsey and we can score another touchdown, right? It's a beautiful thing to watch when it's in motion, when it's clicking, On a football team, you need the whole team to be on the same page, operating out of the same playbook, and so it is with the church of Jesus Christ. So what does striving together mean at LifeBridge? Three points here. First of all, it means this. We strive collectively. It means we, at LifeBridge, we strive collectively as a team, not individually on our own. Now, this pushes back against our culture of individualism, does it not? But we strive, again, collectively, not individually. I'm sure many of you have heard of Aesop's fables, and one of his fables is about a father who had seven sons. And to each son, he gave a stick. Each was asked to break his stick. No problem. It was easily done to break one stick. Then the father took another seven sticks and he bound them together. And then he asked each of his seven sons to break the sticks. Not one of them could break the sticks which he had bound together as one. In the same way, on our own, you and I will be snapped in two by Satan and even by our own fleshly desires. This is why we need to strive collectively. This is why we need the accountability, the encouragement, the comfort, the support that only comes from being in community with other believers in Christ. Is it any surprise then that Satan has one primary goal in the church, and that is to divide and conquer, divide and conquer isolate a believer from the community of the church, and he or she will be easily picked off. And so it's no wonder that Paul stresses the importance of humility, the importance of unity, immediately after this section of scriptures in Philippians chapter 2. Here's the point. There is strength in numbers, and the enemy knows it. There is strength when we are bundled together in unity, striving together as a team. Not as isolationalists. Not as individuals. Which is all the more important why we gather together as a church family on the Lord's Day. This is critically important for our own spiritual well-being. To be in community with one another. It is vital for our own spiritual safety. And so while the world is concerned about their physical safety, folks, listen, we are more concerned about the spiritual safety as a church family. That's what matters. We strive collectively. Number two, we strive alongside one another, not against each other. Unfortunately, some in the Philippian church started fighting each other. 
And such sideways energy does no good in our efforts to advance the gospel in the face of opposition. In fact, Paul even has to address this issue in the church of Philippi where he does so in chapter 4. Listen to what he writes in verses 2 and 3. He says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In other words, to get along in Christ. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored. And that word labored is the same word that Paul uses here in Philippians 1. Strive, who have labored or strive side by side with me in the gospel together with Clemente and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, previously, these two ladies in the church were striving alongside Paul in the mission. But then something happened and they swerved off mission. One of my all-time favorite sports movies is Remember the Titans. Great movie, right? How many have seen it? Most of you have. It's based on the true story of a high school football team in Alexandria, Virginia, overcoming the challenges of racial integration in their very first season. Herman Boone, the African-American coach played by Denzel Washington, leads this integrated school to a state football championship in 1971. But first, they had to overcome some serious internal strife in the locker room before they could ever win any games against their opponents out on the football field. It's only when Coach Boone takes his team to a a two-week training camp and walks these players out on the fields of Gettysburg that they begin to set aside their differences, set aside their prejudices, and begin to forge some real friendships that they begin to strive together as a team. Something like that has to happen in every church if we're going to advance the gospel, which brings us to the final point. We strive for the same goal, not different goals. We strive for the same goal, not different goals. We must always remember what Paul writes at the end of verse 27. He says, with one mind, striving side by side for what? Do we strive side by side for our, my own agenda? Do I strive side by side for my own personal preferences of what I like when it comes to music? What I like when it comes to this? My agenda, my preferences, is that what we are striving side by side for? No. Paul says, listen, with one mind, in unity, side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. As a church, we are committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Listen, our goal, our mission, is to advance the gospel locally and globally. It's to bridge the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because only the gospel is the saving hope that the world so desperately needs, but they don't realize. As Paul declares in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of this gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. E. Stanley Jones, a missionary in India, he put it this way. The early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight, look what has come to the world. 
In other words, Jesus Christ has come. The gospel has come. In other words, those early Christians didn't huddle together for warmth, but they banded together for mission to proclaim the good news of the gospel so that more people would follow Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. And so when the church loses this missional mindset, it's only a matter of time until it devolves into arguing and nitpicking in selfish agendas all the things that Paul says absolutely must not happen for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, listen, there's just one thing that matters. One thing. Live worthy of the gospel. As a church, listen, we must stand firm together in the grace of the gospel And we must strive together to advance the gospel and then get ready. You're like, get ready for what? Get ready for opposition. You will have opponents in opposition when you live worthy of the gospel. You don't believe me? Look what Paul says in verse 28. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying first and foremost that fearlessness is absolutely necessary in order to live worthy of the gospel. Fearlessness. We might call it in a more positive term gospel courage. So if that makes you feel better, that's the term I'd Gospel courage, fearlessness. Notice it. Gospel courage is necessary in the face of gospel opposition. Paul says basically, don't be frightened by your opponents of the gospel. Instead, remain confident in the power and protection of your king. And I love this about Paul because he doesn't sugarcoat the truth here. He doesn't sugarcoat the reality of what it means to live worthy of the gospel. Listen, living worthy of the gospel requires living fearlessly in Christ as your king. This word frightened, it actually refers to horses that are easily spooked, easily startled on a battlefield. It describes a panic reaction. And so Paul is saying, yes, live worthy of the gospel. And it will draw opposition. But don't be startled by your opponents. Don't be spooked by them. Don't back down in fear or cower under intimidation. Live fearlessly in the power of your king. Now, you may be wondering who exactly were these opponents that were giving the Philippians such a hard time. Most likely, they were their Roman neighbors and even the Roman authorities. Now, we can relate to that, can we not? Neighbors, co-workers, just our culture in general here in America is hostile to Christianity. Even our authorities are becoming more hostile. Maybe not so much here in the Midwest, but go live in the Northeast Coast or the left coast. Get ready. Get ready. Gospel courage is necessary in the face of gospel opposition. 
And although this was something, listen, this is something that's easily to fear, naturally to fear. This is not to diminish it. This is not to sweep it under the rug. This is not to deny the reality of it. Which is why Paul reminds us, as he did to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. And so our natural tendency, let's be honest about it, our natural tendency is to be carried away by fear, by the issues that we see in the problems that we have, in the opposition that we face. But hear me, church, what God has placed inside of you as a follower of Jesus Christ is a fearless spirit of power, love, and sound judgment to carry His name wherever you go. I love the way that Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, put it. Faith, which is trust, and fear are opposite poles. If a man has the one, he can scarcely have the other in vigorous operation. He that has his trust set upon God does not need to dread anything except the weakening or the paralyzing of that trust. So fortify your trust. Fortify your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the key to living fearlessly in the power and protection of your king. You trust God more than you fear your opponents. So Paul says, share the gospel fearlessly and then be prepared for the opposition when you do. And yes, by the way, some will be drawn to the grace of God while others will not only reject it, but may also oppose you. But look what Paul says next. In the very last phrase of verse 28, he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And so we not only need gospel courage in the face of gospel opposition, but now we see that gospel courage in the face of gospel opposition is actually a two-way sign. It's a two-way sign. It's a sign pointing to destruction and salvation. And Paul offers this as a word of encouragement to the Philippian believers, which is also a word of warning to their unbelieving opponents. The fact of the matter is, when Christians stand together, stand firm in the gospel, and when Christians strive together in the face of gospel opposition, something happens. A sign is given. It's a two-way sign pointing to destruction and salvation, pointing to confrontation and confirmation, pointing to judgment and assurance. Unbelievers are confronted with their unbelief and their impending judgment if they do not repent and believe. Believers, on the other hand, are reaffirmed in their struggle of standing firm and striving together that, hey, we really are God's people and that we will be saved on the last day when Christ returns. And although it seems that the church's opponents at this moment in time have the upper hand, that their persecution of believers, whether it's mild or severe, listen, Paul is saying that persecution is an omen of a radical reversal to come. Now, that doesn't mean that our opponents all of a sudden recognize their doom. More than likely, 
In fact, they see our loyalty to the gospel. They see their persecution against us as a sign of our destruction. Of course, we as believers who have the whole counsel of God, the scriptures, we see it all. We see it as a sign of their impending judgment and destruction, as well as a sign of our own eventual rescue by God himself. Now, I don't know about you, but this should make us calm and this should make us confident in the face of gospel opposition. But listen to me, not smug and arrogant. The fact that our salvation, Paul says, he has this little phrase, is from whom? It's from God. Again, he's reminding us of the grace of God. It is nothing of us. It reminds us that, that our eventual victory in Christ is nothing that we can take credit for. As Paul has already told us, God began the work of salvation in us, and he will now sustain us and keep us until the end when Christ comes. So Paul would say, be confident in your salvation, but also be humble by God's grace in your life and be burdened even by or for your opponents. Yes, no doubt about it. People will oppose you for living worthy of the gospel. That was true in Paul's day in the city of Philippi. Folks, that is true in our day in the city of Kansas City. People will oppose you for living worthy of the gospel. But folks, listen to me. That doesn't mean we should live hopelessly. Just the opposite. Paul is reminding us that our opponents won't win in the end. God will have the last word when Christ returns. And so don't panic. When you watch the news, when you read your social media and you see riots and protests, even in an election, don't panic about who's going to win this election in November. Don't panic when you see a Senate and presidential fight and riots break out over who the next Supreme Court nominee is going to be. And whether it will happen before the election or wait till after the election. Don't panic about it. Why? Because God is sovereign. He is reigning and ruling over this world. And according to Habakkuk 2.14, one day, listen, one day, get this, one day, God's glory will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And so Paul says, live with joy in the journey. Live with hope in your life as you live worthy of the gospel. This is the one thing that matters. As citizens of heaven, live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and reflects that Jesus Christ is your king. Resolve to stand firm, no matter what the cost, in the grace of the gospel and resolve to strive for the faith of the gospel and do so fearlessly in the power and protection of your king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh, how we thank you for saving us by your grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we were dead in the trespasses of our sins. And you did a miracle to intervene in our lives. 
to help us see ourselves as sinners and to see a need for Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so, Lord, help us to be humbled by that and yet confident by that as well. And, Lord, help us to live worthy of that gospel that has saved us and to do so fearlessly in the power and Savior and King Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.